Let's open the precious Word of God to Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 33. Ephesians chapter 5 and the 33rd verse. In chapter 5 and verse 8, it tells us about this Ephesian church, that ye were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children of light in this fifth chapter of Ephesians. It tells us in verse 14, Awake thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. These are born again children of God that needed to get over their spiritual doldrums and arise from the dead and awake from their sleep, and Christ would give them extra light. Now the light we have in the second half of this chapter is light on the institution of marriage. And we'll just read the 33rd verse. Nevertheless, the reason the word nevertheless there is there is because the apostle is now going back to earthly human marriages of believers. He had left it for a few verses to describe the relationship of Jesus Christ and his church. Now he's returning. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself. And the wife see that she reverence her husband. So husbands are to love their wives like they love themselves, which they do very well, and they should transfer that and apply it to their wives, and wives should reverence their husbands. This is the light of the Lord. This is the light of the gospel. This is what comes with Christianity, is changed behavior toward a spouse. And so we want to embrace it and love the light. I asked you earlier when we finished the first sermon this morning, do you see and know the light? Do you love the light? And are you going to walk in that light? And the light that we're dealing with in this series of messages is the light of the Bible about marriage. The perilous times, as they are described in 2 Timothy chapters 3 and 4, mean that Christians have compromised marriage, love, and sex as well as the world, which has done it forever. You have an opportunity. I have an opportunity with you to follow God's rules and to maximize marital pleasure. You can contend with the wicked and shut their mouths, shut the mouths of gainsayers that hate our gospel by adorning the gospel with happy, fulfilling, wonderful marriages. God's told us how to do it in the Bible. He's given us a manual to make the man of God perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. He's not, he hasn't been silent from the beginning of the Bible all the way to this chapter of Ephesians 5 and then in other places after it as well. God's told us how to have our marriages. Each married person is going to give an account to God how you have treated your spouse and the standard that you ought to be reaching for is right here in the printed pages of our Bibles. That's what we'll be held accountable for. Man's whole duty is to fear God and keep His commandments. And that includes marriage. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 9 again with me. Ecclesiastes chapter 9 where the wise preacher, the Solomon, king of Israel, the philosopher of God's Word, tells us what is our portion under the sun. Now he had a lot of negative things to say about what it was like to live in this world under the sun, but he tells us that there is a good thing. There's several good things. 
But this is one of them. Verse 9. Live joyfully. How about be happy? Live joyfully. Live joyfully. Don't live bitterly. Don't live revengefully. Don't live disrespectfully. Live joyfully with the wife whom thou lovest all the days of the life of thy vanity, which he hath given thee under the sun all the days of thy vanity. For that is thy portion in this life and in thy labor which thou takest under the sun. Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might. For there is no work, nor device, nor knowledge, nor wisdom in the grave whither thou goest. Of course there are those things in heaven for our spirits, but they are not in the grave for our bodies. So there's two things that fulfill a man and can help a man live joyfully. Have a good job or trade and do well at it. Whatsoever your hand finds to do, do with your might and live joyfully with your wife. Solomon described life under the sun as all is vanity, vanity of vanities, all is vanity and vexation of spirit. But two things can help us. A great job that you work hard at and a wife that you love. That's what God's given us as gifts under the sun to give us some value and pleasure, though life is in general vanity and vexation of our spirits. These are two things that are gifts of God. The the Bible's inspired philosopher told us that. Two married believers in a church, anything short of joy is either their folly or their rebellion against God's Word. Because God's Word tells them how they can be happily married. If fellowship with God in a sinless world was bad, the Lord said it is not good. If fellowship with God in a sinless world is bad, a godly marriage must be fantastic. Right? Right? Mm -hmm. Because we would think that fellowship with God in a sinless world is about as good as it can be. But the Lord looked at it and said, it is not good. This man needs a help. Meet for him. So I'll make him a helper out of a rib. So let's remember that. The Lord sets the bar pretty high as to how fulfilling and pleasant marriage should be if we're doing it God's way. Now God gave us a manual to help us. And God invented marriage. He invented love. He invented sex. Only He knows how to maximize their pleasure. Any conduct... Anything that you do that is different from God's Word is going to hurt you because His rules are for you. All the drivel and twaddle of God-haters is self-destructive rebellion. Just look around at their relationships. What is biblical counseling? Identifying sin according to the Bible and changing lives by repentance. The R factor is the most important thing in our lives to change and do it God's way. We hear the Word of God. The Bible describes the Word of God when it is preached as a mirror. We look in the mirror, we see some blemishes, and we don't do anything about it. We just walk out of the service, put the mirror away, and go out without taking care of those blemishes. But the Bible says we ought to look into that mirror and get dressed up as we go out for our interview in the world and our interview to meet God. It's ridiculous to look in a mirror and realize that your tie is over there before you go to an interview. 
I'll hit your attention by leaving it there for a while. <laughs> I love the Word of God. It describes it as a mirror. And you want to pass me a cell phone so I can take a selfie? The mirror of God's Word. Do you know what kind of light's going to be shining on that mirror? You all know, don't you, that there are certain mirrors that you can get in front of and you don't have very many blemishes? Then you get a mirror that's in the sunlight. You say, what in the world happened? You all know what I'm talking about, don't you? I, I like the dark ones, preferably when the lights are off. But you, you take God's Word as a mirror. Do you know what light is shining on it? The light of the Lord Jesus Christ. It shows up our blemishes, our flaws with the brightness of God's Word and the brightness of the Lord Jesus Christ and His perfect righteousness and His perfect standard for us. And we want to see our blemishes and change. That's why I'm preaching on this subject. There's all kinds of obstacles. I mentioned several to you last Lord's Day. You learn many things like walking and talking from your parents. Hopefully you didn't learn much about marriage from them unless it was good. And it's only good if it matches up with God's Word. I don't care what you think about your parents and their marriage if it doesn't match up with God's Word. I don't care if you think they were happy. I don't care if you think they got along well. If it doesn't match God's Word, they didn't do it right, you shouldn't be following their example. Another obstacle is the habits and routines that you fall into shortly after marriage and extend for the duration of that marriage ordinarily unless the mirror of God's Word gets you to change. We fall into ruts of habits. The way we think about our spouse, the way we treat our spouse, the way that words fly out about our spouse that we wouldn't say to other people ordinarily in public. These are habits that we fall into that we want to correct. Dylan? Okay. Don't fall into any habits. Keep the Word of God as the mirror for your marriage. Make sure you have a good marriage covenant and live by it and help her live by it when you get married in the month of May. There's peer pressure that, that pushes us and stresses us and bends us to match the world's standards versus God's standards. It can be friends. It can be the church. People that aren't living functional married lives, even in the church, it can be family. It can be Oprah. It can be whatever kind of peer pressure comes to bear on you. Then there's bitterness, unresolved offenses that uh, churn around in our liver. The bile down there. The bitterness that comes up. And so the words have an edge to them. And, the, and our attitude toward our spouse has an edge to it. And the Bible tells us men very simply, husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. Right. That's, that's the, a short sentence about marriage in Colossians 3.19 because that is what we're prone to do. By nature. We don't want to do that. Pride keeps us from humbling ourselves and repenting. Are you able to say to your spouse, I was wrong. The way that I have treated you in this particular thing is wrong. Please forgive me. I will try not to do it again. Is that too hard for you to say? Can you say that? Here's the better question. When did you last say it? Because we all need to say it. Because none of us are perfect. And so we should show our wives the leadership of real leadership by being able to confess faults and ask for their forgiveness. God invented marriage. It's not the result of cavemen sitting around a campfire and hallucinating about monogamy, as I mentioned to you. 
Marriage is good. We've already seen that from Ecclesiastes 9 where we are right now. I gave you one rule last Lord's Day. Marriage starts with the man. Marriage was created for the man. The woman was created for the man. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 11 and see it in a passage of Scripture that hopefully most of you read last evening in your preparatory devotions to this day's worship. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. It says in verse 3, But I would have you know, this is revelation. This is not rationalization. This is not public opinion. This is revelation from God through Paul. But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ. And the head of the woman is the man. And the head of Christ is God. Paul tells us something that is simple but profound. The order in this universe is God, Jesus Christ, the husband, the wife. God, Jesus Christ, the man, the woman. That's the order. We're not ashamed of it. We're not going to apologize for it. We're going to say it. We're going to read in the book and the law of God distinctly and give the sense. What's the sense? God, Christ, Man, woman. That is the order of authority. That is how the universe, that's how this world is supposed to work. And that's how the universe works. Let's cheat a little bit and go to the first topic of this day, what we had this morning, by turning to the, to the right four chapters and going to 1 Corinthians 15. Let me remind you of this verse. Because I just put Christ under God. Is Christ God? Is Christ under God? Yes, both are true. Here's a verse that you don't want to forget when you're dealing with eternal sonship advocates. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 28. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, that is, all things subdued to the Lord Jesus Christ, he is King of kings and Lord of lords. When all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Don't forget that verse. That verse will help you to remind them, are you trying to tell me that the Son is subordinate to the Father? Yes. Are you trying to tell me that the Son is inferior to the Father? Yes. That the Son is in submission to the Father? Yes. On what basis? 1 Corinthians 15, 28, among others. Don't forget that. So when we say God, Christ, man, woman, it is very scriptural. Now in the Lord Jesus Christ's divine nature, is he subject to God? No, he is God. But in his human nature, he's subordinate. And you've got to keep the two. Remember, he grew in wisdom. He had all the treasures of wisdom, which is true. Both. Back to 1 Corinthians 11. Verse 8, for the man is not of the woman. It wasn't a woman's rib that made the man. So it says, the man is not of the woman. We didn't come from the woman. We as men. But the woman of the man. It was a man's rib that made the woman. These are just some axioms from creation. And this is inspired wisdom of the Apostle Paul able to look at Genesis chapter 2 and come up with these axioms by inspiration. 
This is the revelation of God. The man is not of the woman, and we know it because of the rib story from Genesis 2, but the woman of the man. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. And so in marriage, there is an order that the woman is to help and serve the man. She was made for him. He was not made for her. And we learned all that in Genesis 2. The Apostle Paul is just pulling out the axioms that need to be laid down for a Christian marriage. This is the light of Christ. This is the light of the Lord Jesus Christ. God, Christ, man, woman. And it's stated in these forms of axioms by the Apostle. Neither, you know, the men didn't come from a woman. The woman came from men. You were part of us. You were made out of one of our body, out of a rib, in order to help the man and to give him a help that would satisfy his loneliness. And the man wasn't created for the woman, but the woman was created most definitely for the man. Verse 10, For this cause ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels. A woman ought to have long hair because that is a symbol of her being under authority because the angels believe authority and they're always witnessing our conduct, including the length of a woman's hair. What's the topic in the first 16 verses of this chapter? Hair length. Hair length is the overriding topic. That's why verse 10, you say, what is verse 10 talking about? Because the woman is subordinate to the man. She was made for the man. She should have that drapery hanging over her head to show her in a submissive role toward her husband. I can't have more time on that. We've preached it before. It's, it's on the website for 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Nevertheless, verse 11, neither is the man without the woman. Though Paul just said some things that might sound a little hard toward women, Paul says, nevertheless, in spite of what I just said, Neither is the man without the woman, neither the woman without the man. And three modifier, three word modifying prepositional phrase, in the Lord. Marriage should only be in the Lord. And a man ought to have a Christian wife and a Christian woman ought to have a Christian husband. For as the woman is of the man, even so is the man also by the woman, but all things of God. These are just laying out axioms. For as the woman is of the man, she was made of a man's rib, even so the man also is by, so is the man also by the woman. A woman gives birth to each one of us men. But all things of God. And then he goes on to judge in yourselves. Is it comely that a woman pray unto God uncovered? And he deals with head coverings and hair length. He says in verse 15, if a woman have long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given her for a covering. Forget the other covering that's in this passage. Look at this covering. It's her long hair. If a woman have long hair, it doesn't say if a woman has hair, if she has long hair, it is a glory to her. If any man seem to be contentious, anybody want to argue about this truth that's just been laid out in the first 15 verses? We have no such custom, neither the churches of God. This is the way we do things, and we don't take debate about it. Right. Let's go over to Genesis chapter 2. Nope, before we go there, 1 Timothy chapter 2. Forgive me. Forgive me. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Let's see the apostle reason again like he just reasoned there. Did you see his reasoning from Genesis 2? And it's inspired reasoning. It's just not Paul guessing at some things. Do you know what, some, do you know what modern theologians like to say about Paul? He was a male chauvinist pig. He wasn't married because he hated women. 
And so the reason he wrote those things is because Paul hated women, because that's a naturalistic view of the Bible, that it was just Paul writing whatever Paul felt like on a given day, when we know that the Holy Spirit of God was moving the Apostle Paul to write what he wrote, that what he wrote was the revelation of God. First Timothy chapter 2, the, the subject here beginning at verse 11, is that women in the church are to learn in silence with all subjection. They are under the authority of men. Let the woman, that is a collective noun for all women, let women... Let the woman, doesn't it means the same thing, learn in silence with all subjection. But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. They are not to talk in the assembly of the church. This is plainly taught. It's plainly violated in most churches today. But this is what the Bible says. And if you want a second witness for it, it's 1 Corinthians 14, verses 34 and 35, where it says the same thing from the same apostle. Now the Apostle is going to tell us on two counts why this is sensible and righteous. First count, verse 13. For Adam was first formed, then Eve. The order of creation tells us that Adam is more important than Eve and that Eve is to be subordinate to Adam because of the order of creation. Do you you see how short the verse is? Do you see that Paul doesn't elaborate? He just appeals back to Genesis chapter 2. Adam was first formed, then Eve. So Eve was made for Adam. Therefore, Eve ought to be quiet, especially in church, and not to talk, but to learn in silence with all subjection. You know, you're uncomfortable maybe hearing the words that are coming out of my mouth. I, I get a little uncomfortable letting them out of my mouth. But the truth is the truth, and so I believe it and love it. And even though it's the year 2016... And though I sound like a Neanderthal caveman, uh, this is the Word of God, and it's worked very well for thousands of years. And if we would put it into practice, it would still work well. And in those marriages where the good, blessed, holy women that are in this church put it into practice, their marriages are blessed by it, and the Lord loves every one of you. Okay, the second count on why a woman should be quiet and learn in silence with all subjection. It's in verse 14. And, meaning here's the second of the two rules, Adam was not deceived. Adam made a choice of rebellion, but he wasn't deceived. He showed a character issue in honoring the woman over God, but he didn't show a nature issue of being susceptible to lies. Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Now, Adam is the one that sinned and brought sin upon the whole world. The Bible tells us that in Romans 5. But in this particular context, the issue is a character fault of being vulnerable and susceptible to lying. And the woman is susceptible. She's more emotional in hearing things than men typically are. Now, if you say, well, today, most men act like women, I would say, yes, you're right, and we have a Bible prophecy telling us that that would happen. You know, they want to get in touch with their feminine side. What side is your feminine side, Adam? They want to get in touch with their feminine side. We don't want to do that. We want to be the men that God told us to be. And it, we just we just trust God's Word. I totally believe this 14th verse of 1 Timothy 2, that it's as relevant as, as it has ever been 
if it is not more relevant than it's ever needed to be for our society. Okay, Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. Let's go back to where Paul was gathering the material for the axioms he was laying down about marriage. God, Christ, man, woman. The man was not made for the woman, but the woman for the man. The woman was of the man, but men come by the woman. And so the apostles, getting getting it all out there, how we relate to each other in our two sexes, but all things are of God. And he's told us how we ought to conduct ourselves, and if we don't do it his way, he has no custom of allowing contentious men. Okay, Genesis chapter 2. A wife should start each day and set all of her priorities on the simple but profound fact that we just covered. God made me to serve and help my husband. God made me to make my husband a better man. God made me to do everything that I can to make my husband's life easier, to make my husband's heart happier, to make my husband's mind more content. I want to take all the worries off his mind. I want to help him be great. I want him to be able to stand in the, con- in the gate of the congregation and have other men respect him because they know at home everything is taken care of by me so that he is great and he doesn't have to be worried about spoil and coming home to do things that should be done for him. I could go on and on and word this this way, but it's what the Bible teaches. The husband of the virtuous woman was known in the gates of her city because he had the time and the wherewithal to sit as a judge in the city because his wife took care of everything at home. I don't give very many illustrations. And maybe I've already given this one. Forgive my weak mind. I enjoyed telling the CFO of Michigan National Bank's My job, my job is to work hard enough and wise enough that you can sit at your desk all day long and read the Wall Street Journal and drink coffee and call your wife. Now, why was I so crazy? Because the Bible says that he was over me and I was under him and my job was to serve him. I would tell him, I want you to sit here and just come up with ideas for what you want me to do. I'll make you great in the bank. I will burn myself out in producing anything that you need so that when you go to meetings, you are the most prepared and wisest man in this bank. You know, when I think I said to you that I did have a hand clenched around his coat, that wherever he was going, I was going to be pulled along with him. And you say, well, that's kind of selfish. But uh, uh, no, it isn't. Uh, The virtuous woman wants a man who stands in the gate of the city and who's well-respected, and she helps get him there. The reason I said that, and I don't like giving illustrations, the reason I said that is because I hear women chirping. They're chirping in their minds, and maybe not too many here, but they chirp and say, well, I'd like to see you submit. I love submitting. Do you know what the military's like? You don't even know anything about submission compared to the military where one man who puts his pants on the same way can tell another man who puts his pants on the same way, take your gun 
and go charge that machine gun nest. And yes, the probability of you dying is above 90%. What do they do? Yes, sir. Women, what's the problem? Why is it so hard? Men do it. I can remember churning and burning days on end, at night, all night, producing a report for the president of Michigan National, Bank of Detroit, one of the banks in that holding company, coming and laying a Bible on his desk, practically. I mean, a Jonathan Crosby-produced Bible. And he's flipping through all of this strategic planning and how the bank's going to be great and famous and He's flipping through all that stuff, and he says, I don't like it. What you have in rows, I'd like in columns, and what you have in columns, I'd like in rows. Now, you all know me. I hope that the angst was only on my face for a few seconds. I do wish I could go back and be a better employee. Um, Those things happen. Do you know what? He has the right to say that. If he wants it presented in a different format, when I had worked so hard to present it the best way, of course. (laughs) And all of this is all that I'm saying. All that I'm saying is, she is to be his helper. She is to be his helper. Men do it. I hope every man in here, when you go to work tomorrow, Adam, if it's a customer of yours, Charlie, if it's a customer of yours, Eric, if it's a boss of yours, Aaron, if it's a boss of yours, you're going to get in there and serve them. I did tell them those things. I did tell him, my job is to work hard enough for you to be able to sit here and read the Wall Street Journal and drink coffee all day. And if that includes washing your car, send me. And that isn't... A Christian should want to be a servant. A Christian should want to be a servant and enjoy being a servant because the High King of Heaven served us by laying down His life for us. It's, It's... I truly believed, I wanted him to be the greatest, the best CFO in the company. Lord, help our women. It is hard. It's our flesh. Our flesh wars against wanting to do things the Bible way. This has nothing to do with male chauvinism or other man-made terms of rebellion. This is God's word. And it starts right out with the order of creation. Verse 18, the Lord God said, this is Jehovah, written by Moses, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him an help meet for him. I will make a help suitable, fit, appropriate for him. The next point I'd like to make is marriage is for companionship. Necessity is the mother of invention. Adam's loneliness brought God's invention of marriage. Because it says here, the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. So marriage is primarily to solve loneliness. A married man cannot be a monk. You can't go hide in your workshop. You can't go hide with too much overtime so that you're never home. He must reciprocate to his wife. Because the Bible tells us, and I'll not turn you to this one, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 32 through 35, the man that is unmarried, forget the... The woman, right now we're talking with the man. The man that is unmarried careth for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But a man that is married careth for the things of his wife, how he may please his wife. That's an assumption 
that the Apostle Paul made about a Christian marriage. That a man should be preoccupied with making his wife happy. It says so. And when it's both work, when, when both spouses are working that way, they can have a very happy, loneliness-defying, friendliness-building, wonderful, affectionate relationship. And that's what we want to have. The cure for a man's loneliness, loneliness is not golf buddies. It's not video gamers. It's not hunting friends. When you see a man that puts more of his time and effort into those things, there's something wrong at home. Or there's something wrong in his understanding and his affection for his wife. Of course, if you're married to an odious woman, video games in the attic become very desirable. Of course, if you're married to an odious woman, working overtime in the most painful job you've ever imagined is better than being at home with the woman. And the Bible tells us all of that clearly in the book of Proverbs. Friendship with a man like Jonathan and David had, like Jehu and Jehonadab, those are good, but you owe your wife. Because the Bible says so. Companionship is a two-way street. It's just not your wife. You can still be lonely if it's just service. You want friendliness involved going in both directions. Marriage is for more than sex. This is rule number two. Marriage is for companionship. Rule number one is it starts with a man. Rule number two is marriage is for companionship. Marriage is for more than sex. And the man that emphasizes sex over love, friendship, companionship is an abuser. There's got to be appropriate balance in there because of what this verse says. When it says, I will make him and help meet for him, he's not just talking about sex because the reason, the necessity that caused the invention, it's not good for the man to be alone. Couples that do things in life without their spouses are curious. It doesn't say good things about them. It, it's a pleasure to do everything with your wife. Right. Everything with your wife. To have been a young 19-year-old husband with a 16-year-old wife and change the oil in my car. To be laying under the car doing the nasty job of changing the oil and to look out and see those two little petite ankles standing there waiting to hand the mechanic whatever he needed. That made changing the oil fun. Changing the oil alone, you know, is so different. She's always been there. When I see marriages where the spouses love to go off and do a large number of things by themselves, it it says so much. Why don't they enjoy being together? How can they even allow being separated? If she's bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, if she's my companion sent to me by God, and all that I've put her through in uh, 38 years of marriage, I want her with me. I want to do something nice for her today and tomorrow, Lord helping. Number three, another rule. Help meet is not a word. You say, I can go home and find it in a dictionary. Do you know what a dictionary is? It is a historical document recording all the errors of men in the definitions of words. No dictionary has authority of its own to determine the definition of words. Dictionaries historically record the use of words. You will find a noun called a helpmeet. It is not a word in a Bible. There is no such noun but by abuse. 
God made Eve to be Adam's helper, Genesis 2.18. We can just keep reading this precious verse because Paul drew a lot out of it and we should draw a lot out of it. And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him an help. How long do I need to wait for you to separate the two? Meat for him. It's not a help meat. You say, the point is minor, and I agree, the point is minor, but women will use the vague word to aim for marital equality by calling themselves a help meat. There is no such thing as a help meat. She's a helper. Now see, that just gets it right down to where the rubber meets the road. You're a helper. You're not a help meat. You're a helper, meat for Adam, because you're able to help him in all the ways that a man needs help, including sex. So you're a helper. The wife is her husband's helper, and that subordinate and serving role should excite her. Like being a financial adjunct to the chief financial officer and president of a bank. It excited me. It should excite you. I want to help my husband. How can I help my husband better? When I get up in the morning, what can I do for my husband to help him? How can I help him be ferocious, I mean, in a a good way, at work? How can I help him advance in his job? How can I help him? If he wants to lose weight, gain weight, how can I help him? What can I do to help him? If he needs more sleep, less sleep, how can I help him? That's what ought to motivate a woman because she's a helper. And I know it's a minor point that I'm making here, but if we're going to trust the Bible as our manual, then we need to use its words carefully and precisely. God didn't make a mother. This is rule number four. Eve was not made a mother, which is a short temporary role. She was made a wife. Verse 18, the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a mother for his children. It doesn't say that. I will make him and help meet for him. Not I will make him and help meet for children. I will make him and help meet for him. We have 50th anniversaries or more, but 50-year-old children are only home 20 years, hopefully. This is true of the husband as well. Husbands should not be doting on their children over their wives. Children are a short-term relationship. Then they separate and have their own family unit. And you are still with that wife that God gave you. And you should be building that relationship and keeping that relationship and not letting children interfere with it. The wife that dotes on children or grandchildren over her husband perverts marriage. The children can see it. The children can know it. We can see it. We can know it. The husband sees it, feels it, and knows it. A woman's first loyalty in affection and love is for her man, not for her children. It's easy to love a child. It's too easy. It's a temptation for you to love those little children, these little single-digit things living at your address that you can do little kindnesses for because there's no humbling of yourself to get along with them and necessary compromise to have a proper Christian marriage. You don't have to do any of that with children. If they don't do it your way, you spank them. You know, if they don't eat their peak, their cold peas, they have them on their plate for the next meal. They're your children. You know, it's totally different. But to humble yourself and to say, I'm sorry, to humble yourself and to be a helper, to humble yourself and be a, a servant to your husband, the way that the Bible teaches, that's hard. And so women will get off their husband and on these little babies, doting on them way much more than they need, spoiling them. And dads can do the same thing. 
The affection ought to be on the spouse. Such a woman is selfish. She creates bitterness. No matter how noble, she justifies her sinful ways about loving her children. Her first love, her first loyalty is to her husband. It's infinitely easier to love and dote on a child than it is to love and dote on a man. Such women grow in self-righteousness for they measure themselves by how much they pour into their children when they should be measuring themselves by how much they pour into their husband. The wife that's too tired, too preoccupied, or too worried by her children has defrauded her husband. This is the word of the Lord. And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a help meet for him. So Eve was made to be a wife. Most wives become mothers. Mothers is a temporary job. Even while they're in that job, their husbands need to be first because that's the primary relationship. The other is temporary. The children are going to leave. Don't create bitterness so that when the children are gone, you have to be on the cell phone, be on the text machine, and texting and cell phoning your little children. How about texting your husband some sweet nothings? And if you need help, I'll send you an email. Lord, help us. We can look at one verse. The Apostle Paul drew axioms out of it. We can look at the verse. We can develop axioms out of it as well. That God made Adam a helper for him, a lover for him, a companion for him. The person that can give his life joy, even under the sun, in a vain and vexing life. Marriage is a great thing when it's done right. And all we're doing is wanting to help the women, help the men. Trust me, they're both going to be dealt with equally and fairly from the Word of God so that we do this thing in a way that pleases the Lord, maximizes its profit for us, and adorns the gospel of Jesus Christ. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word. Amen.